Make sure to give my dad a five-star review. Get, make sure to like and subscribe to his YouTube. And thank you for listening and enjoy the show. show. <laughs> the Oath Keepers set up massive arsenals uh, full of weapons at hotels in various locations in Northern Virginia, just across the Potomac River, about 10-15 minutes from the capital, uh, in order to basically take up arms if they needed to take up arms if Trump invoked the Insurrection Act on January 6th, which is part of what uh, Rhodes wanted him to do, but he ultimately never did. Hey, welcome back, Faithful Politics listeners and viewers. If you are watching us on our YouTube channel, I am your political host, Will Wright, and I'm joined by your faithful host, Josh Bertram. How's it going, Josh? Hey, doing well. How are you, Will? Uh, Excellent. And this week, we are joined by a very, very long overdue interview with one Brandy Bookman, who works for uh, the Daily Coast. Coast? Coast? Coast. Coast. Okay. Uh, She's a senior staff writer uh, covering a variety of different things happening in the D.C. area, uh, the least of which being the Oath Keepers, which is what we're going to be concentrating on. And then before that, she was the chief White House and congressional correspondent for Courthouse News. And uh, we are really, really thankful to to have you here today, Brandy. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, you know, and and just just a just a quick programming note. I ha- I have a uh, a public apology to pass along to you. Not not from me, but from one of your old um, coworkers. I believe um, he was also a former guest here, Adam Glassfeld. Yeah. Um. He uh, he wanted to apologize for his disrespect because he didn't address you as senator um, <laughs> when he saw you at the uh, Oath Keepers you trial. You know, that's true. That's true. I, I just now realized that's <laughs> right. So apology accepted uh, when we covered nice. the impeachments together. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, what, what, what's this? What's the what's the story there? The so, long, Senator, the, uh, long and, the long and short of it is. Uh, when we worked at Courthouse News together, we did cover um, the impeachment there, the first impeachment of Donald Trump. And it was myself and a few other reporters, including a good friend of mine, Jack Rogers. Uh, and, it, you know, it was a very, uh, very many long days and long nights. And there was a lot of order that had to be kept. And we had to make sure that everybody was on track. Uh, and so there was a lot of motions that were called in the press room. Um, and so I think that I sort of took on the role of the senator uh, for one reason or another. <laughs> And that's how that sort of played out while we were all working together during that very crazy, <laughs> crazy time. Awesome. Well, cool. I will. I will make sure I, I pass along the uh, the news to him. I'm sure he'll be thrilled. Um, and uh, yeah, so you have been covering the Oath Keepers um, trial for the past several. I'm sure it probably seems like years. Um, and uh, yes, twenty nine uh, days, twenty nine day long trial. So. Yeah, so 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 maybe maybe kind of at the at the high level, um, yeah. you know, thirty thousand foot view, and then we will um, kind of dig down a little bit more into the weeds. Um, uh, may, tell us a little bit about what this trial was, um, yeah. you know, and and why it came to be. So the Oathkeeper Seditious Conspiracy Trial is one of the. It is, I think, the highest and most significant and serious charge that the Justice Department brought against any individuals involved with the conduct on January sixth and what happened at the Capitol. And these folks, the Oath Keepers, um, are sort of iconic when we talk about January 6th because these were the folks that were marching up in stack formations uh, with their hand resting on another person's uh, person's shoulder going up in like a line into the Capitol when they got inside. These were a lot of the same folks that we saw that were wearing, uh, you know, a lot of tactical, uh, tactical gear on January 6th. Um, and so the founder of this group, the Oath Keepers went on trial for seditious conspiracy because the government argued after amassing all of this evidence against him and uh, nine other members of his 
organization that they had plotted to forcibly stop the transfer of power on January 6th, but not just on January 6th, the conspiracy existed before then in November and December, and it even extended beyond the 6th and went through until about, uh, was plotted anyway, up until the inauguration of President Biden. So that was sort of what the, you know, charges were about. Um, And so this was a two-month-long trial where there was a lot of evidence rolled out uh, for the jurors to consider, and they did find the leader, uh, Stuart Rhodes, guilty of seditious conspiracy as well as on other charges. And the only other person in this group of defendants that they did find guilty of seditious conspiracy was the Florida Oath Keeper leader. His name was Kelly Meggs. Gotcha. Man, that's that's amazing. Like hearing... You don't often hear about trials of seditious conspiracy. You so really pretty, don't. Uh, pretty amazing that we're uh, we're hearing about it and talking about it. So, what you know, just to get real basic, what are the Oath Keepers, and um, hmm. why should we be concerned about them or care about what they think or what's going sure. on? Obviously, you gave a little, little, little yeah. um, taste there, but what? Who are they, and what what should we think? Sure. So the Oath Keepers were founded back in 2009. It was about a year after Barack Obama was uh, president. And this was a lot of reaction that came from the far right at this time that sort of built up around this patriot movement, the Tea Party movement, things of this nature. And so Rhodes founded the Oath Keepers in 2009 and actually launched it on April 19th. And he did it in Lexington, Massachusetts, where the first shot in the American Revolution was fired. And his whole argument was, you know, we should have this group of uh, law enforcement, ex-law enforcement, military folks, veterans, people who are of this part of our country come together and make sure that the laws of the Constitution are being upheld. And where they are not, we essentially go in and uphold them. And that's a very, you know, that, that's the operative word, uphold, uh, wow. you know, how it's defined. And over the years, you know, the long and short of it with this organization is, you know, they've been involved uh, in a lot of situations where you have folks who think that state laws trump federal laws and that federal laws don't have to be respected like what we had with the uh, Bundy Ranch a few years back with Eamon Bundy. Mm -hmm. You know, Rhodes Mm -hmm. was involved with that. These are folks who showed up uh, during the racial justice protests uh, after Breonna Taylor was killed, after George Floyd was killed, after uh, uh, Michael Ferguson was killed or Michael Brown, excuse me, and Ferguson Mm -hmm. was killed. Um, You know, they show up to protect, quote unquote, you know, businesses and to, uh, you know, assess whatever they think needs to be enforced in terms of law enforcement. So what we're talking about is folks who support the idea of paramilitaries. They support the ideas of militias. And so this was a key issue at this trial because it was really about, you know, can the jury be convinced that their defense is viable, that these are just people who thought that the Constitution uh, was violated because Trump was not properly uh, reelected, that the COVID-19 protocols were unfair, unconstitutional, and therefore they had the right to say that the election was fraudulent. You know, we can get into the details later, but the Oath Keepers themselves are a far-right organization that believe in a lot of conspiracy theory. Um, and they they believe in the Second Amendment very much. And uh, I think that that sort of trumps everything else in their worldview for a lot. And we heard a lot about that at the trial, too. Yeah, that, that, that's that's crazy. And and I'm wondering, so so how many I think earlier you had alluded that there were 10 people um that were were charged um but so, yeah, uh, yeah. With so, Rhodes, so, go, 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 go ahead yeah so with the Rhodes case there were nine there are nine defendants this first trial 
we had five of those defendants go on, and the next batch had to be split off simply because the federal courthouse could not accommodate all of the <laughs> defendants, all of the attorneys, everybody's paralegals, you know, all the press and all of this. You know, we held this uh, last trial in a ceremonial courtroom in the courthouse. And so these uh, other folks, the four that are left, they're actually going on trial next week. And mm. so they are also facing charges of seditious conspiracy. Um, and a lot of these guys that are going on trial next week were some of the folks who were more closely involved with what the Oath Keepers called a QRF or a quick reaction force that was set up on January 6th. And this was something that, uh, you know, prosecutors said that the Oath Keepers set up massive arsenals uh, full of weapons at hotels in various locations in Northern Virginia, just across the Potomac River, about 10, 15 minutes from the Capitol, uh, in order to basically take up arms if they needed to take up arms, if Trump invoked the Insurrection Act on January 6th, which is part of what uh, Rhodes wanted him to do, but he ultimately never did. So, you know, there's there's a lot of moving pieces with this here. But, yeah, there's uh, this is going to weigh very heavily, I think, on this next batch of Oath Keepers that are going to trial next week here at the courthouse. Yeah. And and the seditious conspiracy was only well, I mean, it was probably the most severe. But mm-hmm. like, what, what were some of the other charges? Yeah. So they all faced multiple charges. Um, there was also conspiracy to obstruct a proceeding, uh, obstruction of the actual proceeding itself being the certification of the vote. Um, they were also facing charges like conspiracy to prevent officials from discharging their duties, destruction of property. Um, one of the defendants, Jessica Watkins, was facing a felony civil disorder charge, which she admitted to on the stand during the trial uh, because there was just so much incredibly stark evidence of her on video camera, you know, audio of her talking where she is resisting police and she's saying, you know, push, 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 get in there, get in there. Um, They can't hold us. So, you know, there was multiple charges that they faced and then there was also tampering charges because several of our defendants here, uh, as the prosecutor showed at showed the jury, had deleted evidence of text messages or tried to sort of cover their tracks after they caught wind of certain people being written about in the press like Jessica Watkins and another Oath Keeper named Donovan Crowell. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, Josh Bertram here, faithful host of the Faithful Politics Podcast. I want to let you know about a compelling new spinoff, the Faith Roundtable, where I'll be interviewing top faith leaders, theologians, and scholars to unpack the pressing issues that are shaping the church in America today. We'll dive into topics like faith and public life, social justice, and how we can engage our communities more effectively. Make sure you don't miss any of our enlightening conversations by subscribing to it on our YouTube channel. Join me at the Faith Roundtable, where deep discussion meets thoughtful insight. Wow. You know, it's amazing how um, how many people it takes to do something like this, you know, and um, the amount of people that had to be unified in what they think. And, and, you know, I don't know much about Stuart Rhodes, uh, very little, um, but it's amazing to me that he got this following. I mean, what can you tell us besides about Stuart Rhodes, besides the fact that he's aspiring pirate? What else <laughs> is, uh, what what's going on with him? How, how are you going to guy like him get this kind of following? Well, you know, I think that one of the things that happens with somebody like Rhodes and one of the things I keep running into uh, just in, you know, when I'm reading what folks are saying about him or about the trial, you know, there's this misconception, I think, for some people that they think that he's just this lazy kind of maybe even stupid man. He's not. Um, he's not. He, you know, his actions might have ended up being very stupid, but he is charismatic. He is very intelligent. He is very well read. He is learned. 
Um, and he has that ability that a lot of narcissists have, which is to be very convincing. And, you know, it was brought up uh, during the trial by another reporter that I worked with. His name is Roger Parloff. His, he works over at Lawfare that it sort of struck him when Rhodes was testifying that he was, he sounded like the kind of guy who was being a blowhard trying to pick up a 17-year-old girl at a bar. You know, it's like, if you don't know enough uh, when he's talking to you, it's it's very easy to see where you could be taken in by whatever his presentation of history is or of politics is or religion or rights or whatever. And he's completely unrepentant in those positions. And he's very arrogant. His testimony when he was on the stand was sort of breathtaking to watch <laughs> because he was a lot quicker than I thought even I gave him credit for before really hearing him go through these questions. Um, but, you know, I think that he's just really tapped into a populism for people. Um, he found it at a very good time when there was a lot of sort of far right rhetoric that was rising in the country back in 08, 09. And he sort of rode that wave as far as he could. And he found his tribe in people who feel like there's a, you know, global cabal and conspiracy that's going on that's trying to replace, I think, white people, I think Christian people, you know, they have this very extreme view. And unfortunately, that view is very popular in our country <laughs> and growing right now. Um, so I, I think that that's, you know, sort of where it came from for him. But when you also sort of tie it into his uh, obsession with the Second Amendment, and there's a lot of people who feel very strongly about that, and that's perfectly all well and good and fine. But, you know, there's uh, there's a lot of conspiratorial thinking, I think, that goes on with a lot of folks. And I think that he just tapped into a, a vein for that. That's and he went to Yale, didn't he? He did. Yeah, he's a, a Yale Law School graduate. Before that, he went to the University of of Nevada. You know, he was a U.S. Army paratrooper. He was discharged after three years in the service. Um, you know, his his family. Uh, he's estranged from his wife. He's estranged from his children. Uh, and to hear them tell it, you know, he was an extremely abusive person. They had made a lot of allegations of domestic abuse and, uh, you know, had a lot of had a lot of issues with him over the years. And I've talked to his estranged wife, Tasha Adams, a few times. And I'll tell you, uh, when I asked her before he had testified, how do you think he's going to take the take these questions? Because we know that under direct examination from his own side, it's going to be no sweat, no problem. But once it starts to get with prosecutors crossing him and they start to needle at him, how do you think he's going to respond? And she told me that, you know, exactly how he behaved was how she described it, was that he would become increasingly pompous and he would, you know, uh, retain his cool and he would somehow figure out a way to make it about himself to brag about himself and that was exactly what he did i mean it was it was uh really something to behold you know i think that even now i question after his sentencing um if he's sitting right now and wondering how he's going to make himself a pariah out of this you know how is he going to play this to his benefit because it seems to be that in his personal career and his personal history it's all about Elmer first, not really about <laughs> anybody else. Yeah, that, that's right. Because it's his first name is Elmer, right? That's right. Yes, that's right. <laughs> and I, I don't know if if I if I read if I read it from you or somewhere, but was there a point in the trial where he says like the reason he goes by Stewart is because his first name's Elmer? Yeah, he, he, <laughs> he he's not a big fan of that. You know, it's it was really funny to watch him get very upset. Um, when he would see pictures of himself, anytime he would see video or images of himself played for jurors, he would always comment on his appearance, you know, every time, <laughs> every time. Yeah. So, funny. so, so crazy. Uh, so uh, it was, was the length of the trial um, sort of a byproduct of the number of defendants or was it just a very complex? You um, know, I think that there was a, a, a couple of things that were happening with this, the sheer volume of evidence, you know, this was a two year long investigation. Essentially, this was a really uh, intense process running up to the actual trial itself. 
And there was so much information that authorities had seized from these text messages between the defendants. Um, there was a lot of very high production value evidence that was showed to jurors in terms of video footage that made it very clear to them what they were watching, when it was happening. There was, um, you know, literally terabytes of data for, of these conversations and these signal chats among Oath Keepers and others as they were moving toward the six. And a lot of this language was, you know, really very uh, damaging for them. But <clears throat> it was that, and I think that it was just the the number of defendants as well. And we also had Jessica Watkins, who decided to testify rather abruptly. She was not expected to testify. Um, and I, I don't think that was something necessarily that her her attorney may have wanted her to do. But in <laughs> the end, uh, you know, that that sort of dragged it out as well, having her come up because she testified, I want to say, for two or three days. Thomas Caldwell testified on his own behalf and his wife testified on his behalf. You know, that was another part of this. There were dozens of witnesses that came up. We had days where, you know, questioning would go on for one to two days for a single uh, witness, you know, mm. so very lengthy trial, very intense trial. Yeah. Now I, I, I noticed. So during the January 6 hearings, I, I kept, I kept thinking to myself, like, you know, r rule number one of trying to overthrow the government, don't hire a documentarian to follow you around. <laughs> right. So, like, did, yeah. did the Oath Keepers have such a documentarian with them? You know, th it's it's an interesting question, because in terms of did they have a documentarian following them around? Yeah, they did. They had somebody that was filming them. And this was not something that really came up at the trial. But they did have a documented, uh, documentarian filming them in the days up to January 6th. We might <laughs> Call some of that footage that we've seen of Rhodes and the Proud mm. Boys leader uh, Henry Tario in an underground garage in D.C. on the mm. eve of the insurrection meeting. I mean, this was something that they chose to do themselves. And during the committee hearings, we saw Nick Quested come up and testify about that. Mm. But at this particular trial, this was really about their own words. I mean, uh, this is something that I that I think about all the time as a person who covers courts uh, for the last seven years now is anything that you think you can hide from a federal prosecutor. Chances are you can't. So just <laughs> don't say it. Uh, uh, just don't say it in a text if you can avoid it. And one of the defendants in this matter, Kenneth Harrelson. You know, there was nothing really of his that came up at trial because he didn't text. You know, there was there was not wow. a lot of communication. He didn't have a lot of socials. You know, there was very limited uh, uh, conversations and correspondence that we saw from him. And he wisely decided against testifying on his own behalf. <laughs> and he walked away with the. Uh, you know, several of these charges not guilty, with at least three of these charges not guilty, including sedition, including conspiracy to obstruct, and including destruction of property. So, you know, for, for him, that was a wise move, I think. Wow, that's amazing. Um, it's funny because it just reminds me of, there's this uh, movie called Law Abiding Citizen. Uh-huh. It's, um, and, and it, the, the, you know, I won't give away the movie, but essentially there's a, there's a conviction that a father uh, who had, who had lost uh, people close to him, like was really upset about. And he went to the uh, lawyer and the lawyer said, it's not about what you can, it's not about what happened. It's what you can prove happened. Right. And I just thought it's so interesting hearing you talk about it. Cause it's like, man, it makes me think, how does one prove? Yeah. That that's that's pretty seditious um, conspiracy. I mean, well, what, know, how did one prove that? Because it's not common, right? So how how big right. of a deal is this? How do you prove it? How big of a deal so is it? So this was one of the really interesting questions. And it's it's really, uh, it's funny to me that you brought it up in that context, because this was truly what this was about, I think, for the defense. So the defense largely relied on the argument that there was no explicit plan. 
No one, all, all of these texts, all of this stuff where we see Rhodes and others talking about a bloody civil war, where we see them talking about bringing rifles to the Capitol, resisting the results of the election, all of this, no matter how ugly it was, their argument was, well, you know, look, it's just a bunch of old guys, like they would talk in a locker room, quote unquote, that's literally what one of the defendants called it. It's just a bunch of old guys in a barbershop, quote unquote, you know, that's what one of the defendants said. Um, and that's all well and good because we Wonder didn't where they really got that have, defense from. Right. Because we didn't have a explicit plan. But here's the thing. The government does not need to prove that you had an explicit plan. All they have to prove in order to have you convicted beyond a reasonable doubt on seditious conspiracy in this case to forcibly stop the transfer of power was that there was a meeting of the minds, that you had a mutual hmm. agreement. You didn't have to agree to the terms of the agreement or the means of which you would execute it, but there had to be a meeting of the minds. And so when we look at how the jury ultimately convicted on this, it's so interesting to me because they convicted Rhodes' seditious conspiracy. They convicted Megs of seditious conspiracy because these were the leaders of these uh, of this particular conspiracy, right? But they did not find Rhodes guilty of conspiracy to obstruct a proceeding, which I thought was just very interesting. So it's, you know, we we don't know why the jurors ended up making these particular choices. They didn't take any questions after they rendered their verdict. Uh, they have not yet come out and spoken to the press about anything. But I think that when we talk about the sedition, what there was overwhelming evidence was, was a mutual agreement that they needed to stop the transfer of power because they thought that Joe Biden was a quote unquote Chinese communist puppet and that if he were to come into the White House, it would be the end of their lives as they knew it. And there was a lot of effort that was put into uh, the testimony that was gotten out of witnesses for the prosecution, as well as witnesses for the defense, about these positions. You know, there was a lot of times where we saw them on January 6th, thinking that Pence had, quote unquote, betrayed them. And that the Patriots had to do something, the Patriots weren't going to wait anymore, and that this is what they were going to do, is they were going to go into that building and they were going to be heard. And there was a lot of conflicting information at the trial from the defense, because they would claim that, well, we thought that the certification had already happened. And that's why we went inside. And that's why we tried to mm. have our voices heard. But if you thought that the certification already happened, why not celebrate? You know, it, it's like you, 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 why, why, why choosing to go this way? You have all these folks who you're there to uh, celebrate Trump with. You know that this is your last shot. You know, it just, it didn't, it didn't make any sense. Uh, a lot of, a lot of their defense as they were testifying. And I think that the jury sort of saw through to that. But in terms of the other defendants, when it came to Ken Harrelson and Jessica Watkins and Thomas Caldwell, in this case, the seditious conspiracy charges didn't stick because there wasn't strong enough evidence to suggest that they were in on any kind of uh, seditious plot. They were just kind of happenstance involved. You know, Caldwell is a very old man with a lot of history of injuries, a veteran uh, disabled uh, disabled individual. And he got all the way up to the top of the inaugural stage. And he was there with his wife. He was about 50 yards or so away from the Lower West Terrace Tunnel, which is where some of the worst violence of that day occurred. And his argument was that he could not see into the tunnel. He didn't know that violence was occurring. Uh, but, you know, he, he impeded officers nonetheless. You know, he, uh, he obstructed the certification nonetheless by being a part of that mob. So he was found guilty on obstructing official proceeding. When he found out uh, that, you know, his buddies, Jessica Watkins and Donovan Crowell and all the rest were being reported about in the media after the insurrection, he went to great efforts to conceal all of this talk uh, on Facebook uh, about yeah. January 6th. And he had a lot of talk about January 6th, but, um, you know, and he was found guilty on the tampering charge. So I think the, 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 the toughest charge was the sedition charge to be sure. And that was a tricky one. And I, I was, uh, curious many times as we went, 
whether or not the jury would actually convict on that because I worried about them getting caught up in the idea of it having to be an express plan. But, you know, uh, United States laws are written in such a way that they healthily, healthily account for the fact that conspirators usually don't write down explicitly what it is that they're going to do when they're going to commit a crime. You know? Right, right. That would be a little bit too obvious. Right. So there's a few things, two um, quick things. Um, my So my wife um, got a degree in children's ministry. Yes, there's a degree in children's ministry. And she... Um, <laughs> And, and one, one of her classes was puppeteering. And uh-huh. I was imagining her making a Chinese <laughs> communist puppet. <laughs> she would have made someone like Biden or not. Um, the other thing that I was uh, thinking is, <clears throat> does this set any precedent beyond, like, is, is this setting any precedent that was not set before? Have they... Have they pushed the envelope on this, referring to the United States government? Totally get why they convicted them, why they charged them. Totally understand, think that was the right thing to do. And does the government take any opportunity to expand the definition of this in any way or in, in the precedent? Um, what, what do you think that does to future cases along I mean, those lines? I think, I think what this really does is it, it's, it's, I think it's more about how we think about January 6th and how we think about what happened. And I think the way that this sort of defines what happened that day, because before this conviction on seditious conspiracy, what we all sort of mutually understand about that day, at least, was that a lot of people trespassed, many people assaulted police, many people were in areas that they were not supposed to be in, many people destroyed government property. But what we needed to understand, which was, I think, plain to see for a lot of folks that followed this, even with, you know, relative closeness, was there was an effort by individuals to halt this nation's transfer of power for the first time in centuries. This was an effort by a group of less than a dozen individuals who felt that their will should be more important than the will of everybody else in order to meet out this end in order, you know, hoping beyond hope that they would be called up. And the thing with Rhodes and the thing with this too, is that even he said it uh, in open letters to Trump that he wrote before, before the six in messages that he tried to surreptitiously pass through to him. uh, You know, we're going to do this with or without you. Because the stakes are so high and we cannot let this, you know, quote unquote, communist regime of Joe Biden come into office. And so I think that when we talk about what does this mean, it means quite a lot because it it, it lends some uh, definition and some greater understanding to January 6th as a historical event. And I think that it also helps us think about, uh, you know, Donald Trump. Uh, a little bit more clearly in his role and his involvement and his incitement. Um, it lends, I think, a lot of credence to calling January 6th what it was, which was an insurrection that for some reason we were still uh, are still debating two years later, despite just a massive amount of evidence to show us and, you know, despite his impeachment for it. And then it also has, um, I think, some greater weight outside of that, too. You know, we don't get seditious uh, convictions or sedition convictions, rather, often in this country. The last time that this happened was in 1995, and this was for a group of Islamic militants who had tar- who had targeted uh, New York landmarks, including the World Trade Center, um, for bombings. And so it's not something that is ruled out very often, but when it is, it's, it's like the United States government is very clearly telling you, you know, this is what is the ultimate line here and this is what we cannot break and i think for for what happened with this trial it was very important because it really does tell us you know the system can hold and that when you try to usurp the will of millions of people by force we don't allow that here and that's really important no matter what part of the political you know spectrum you come from yeah. So, so based on what I know um, and your your coverage, um, a lot of the Oath Keepers' um, actions, planning, what have you, 
was sort of predicated on Trump invoking the Insurrection mm-hmm. Act. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious if maybe you can unpack what the Insurrection Act is and then like how would that have helped the Oath Keepers carry out their plan? Right. So basically at its core what the Insurrection Act does it allows the president to basically deploy the military to um, allow any kind of assistance of civilian authority, like the police. So the police could go in and they could be assisted by the army if the if the president wanted them to, right? That's one example of it. But that's not always what it's about. It can be used to respond to riots. It can be used to respond to natural disasters. It can be used uh, in a lot of different ways. But the thing with this particular instance was that it would have allowed... Rhodes, what he, well, what he wanted, I should back up. Rhodes said in his open letters to Trump that he wanted him to invoke the Insurrection Act because he wanted to raise the Oath Keepers to his side and any other mm-hmm. militia that he might need so that they could reverse the outcome of the 2020 election so that they could seize data from digital voting machines that they thought had been rigged. He asked Trump to do this so he could declassify national secrets. And when they asked Rhodes at trial what he wanted him to declassify, Rhodes admitted that he thought Trump could declassify information about a cabal of, you know, pedophiles. Uh, It's the same kind of QAnon right wing conspiracy theory stuff. You know, this was the stuff that Michael Flynn wanted Trump to do to seize voting machines. Um, You know, this was something that if Trump invoked the Insurrection Act, then the Oath Keepers would have all of the power that they would need to be sanctioned by Trump to come into D.C. and to do whatever it is that they thought they were going to do. And, you know, this was definitely a cornerstone of their defense, but it was so easily unraveled by the prosecution. And when you hold up a magnifying glass to that, what you see is that it's so thin And this is something that the government even said before we got into the trial, which was, you know, you're trying to use this as legal cover and you're not going to be able to come into this trial and argue what the Insurrection Act is as a matter of law. But what you can come in and say is that, you know, well, we were here because we wanted to be um, a protection detail. We wanted to protect Trump supporters from Antifa, which is what they said. Uh, (laughs) We wanted to protect Trump VIPs like Roger Stone, like Michael Flynn, like the fellow Ali Alexander who formed the Stop the Steal movement, who organized one of the rallies at the Ellipse that day. You know, that was the kind of stuff that they said. That's why we were there. But, you know, they couldn't really couldn't really defend that ask of Trump, even though Lord knows he certainly tried Uh, because even after, even after the six Rhodes met with somebody who had a, an indirect tie to Trump who said he had an indirect tie to Trump. He was a contractor and a veteran who testified at trial and he met with him uh, kind of covertly. And the guy who he met with, uh, his name was Jason Alpers Alpers didn't trust Rhodes and Alpers was nervous about their meeting. And so he secretly recorded it. And so he (laughs) went to this meeting. It was the day after or four days after, excuse me, the insurrection. And, uh, you know, this fellow, Mr. Alpers, didn't condone what had happened. But Rhodes was still trying to get the message to Trump at this point. You need to invoke the Insurrection Act. You need to stop this from happening because in Rhodes's mind, and this is exactly what he said, He felt that the Trump family was going to be dragged out of the White House like the Romanovs were in Russia and that they were going to be murdered in their beds as they slept. I mean, the guy was completely unhinged, you know. Um, But, yeah, that's sort of where that all came from. Yeah, it's 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 so wild because, like, Hmm. as you're talking, I was thinking, this this is what happens when like a trust fall goes wrong, you know? Yeah. Like like when when like you you're you're hoping that you're you're gonna do something really dangerous. Right. And the idea is that you've got people there that are going to catch you. Mm-hmm. And um it doesn't seem like that Rhodes had the like um confidence or the assurance that Trump was going to do all these things after he did what he was going to do. And I, and I, I'm curious, like, like did Rhodes ever have any direct communication with 
Trump or not, Trump's team? Not that we're aware of, not that there was any evidence shown of that. We know that there were encrypted chats that existed where uh, Rhodes was a part of those chats that Roger Stone was a part of, you know, so we know that there are like lower, lower level folks underneath Trump or, you know, allies to Trump that these folks were in contact with. One of the Oath Keepers who pled guilty to seditious conspiracy before the trial even began was a name, uh, was a man by the name of Joshua James, and he led the Alabama Oath Keepers Division, and he was in charge of protecting Roger Stone on January 5th and on January 6th and, you know, being a part of his security details. So we know that there's a lot of overlap but in terms of you know direct connections no and it was not really explained very well at trial how this Jason Alpers fellow had this quote-unquote indirect connection to Trump but he did um and uh you know, I think that for Rhodes this was something and this is something I've thought about a lot in the last few days I feel like this was his trajectory always was to end up exactly where he ended up because he kept taking himself down this path. Uh, if you you know if you start to dig into him and you look at the arc of his life publicly, uh, you know this was always a war against the government for him. Uh, and I think that he just overplayed his cards this time and he thought that well, let me just take advantage of this riot happening right now. And let me, you know, let me get myself prepared for this moment I've been waiting for. And even before the trial really got underway that thoroughly, he did a he did a, a podcast and he compared himself to Nelson Mandela. And he said, if you want to be willing to do, you know, stand up for what you believe in, you have to be willing to do a 20-year stint in prison. Well, you know, he might very well have his chance to show himself that. So. That makes a lot of sense. So now what like should we expect like him to get the electric chair? (laughs) Chamber. Do we no, we don't do that. No, no. Um, Firing squad maximum sentence on just the sedition charge alone of about 20 years. So the sentencing is Mm going to be several weeks from now, um, likely be a few months from now. And, uh, you know, I I imagine because of his conduct uh, at the trial, because of the weight of the evidence against him, and because, you know, he just showed such little remorse uh, while he was testifying, I'm I'm fairly certain as well, because this is a serious charge that we don't bring very often, I think the government is going to ask for the max. I can't imagine that they wouldn't. And I think that the judge might be inclined to give it to him, um... We'll we'll see how it goes because he has multiple charges here, so I think he's probably very likely going to do at least ten years in prison. But I think it's more likely he's going to do at least twenty years in prison. And it's like, so does like him being? It doesn't feel like this should be right, but him being arrogant that shouldn't play into the uh, sentencing, or does it? Or can the judge be like, "I really don't like you. You're arrogant. I'm giving you twenty five years right. or something." Well, I don't think it's so much that he was arrogant that is what's going to seal his fate here. I think it's that what he effectively admitted to. You know, he he lied on the stand a lot. He tripped up over his own testimony a lot. Wow. And when you lie on the stand, that doesn't tend to bode well for you. I don't care who you are. <laughs> and, you know, the thing with Meta, uh, Judge Amit Meta, who was presiding in this matter, you know, incredibly fair, uh, a very intelligent judge. And even after the trial was over, um, you know, the defense attorneys praised him and said that they got a very fair trial and that the government took them to task. And he said, okay. look, we're disappointed with the outcome, but, you know, this was something that we felt we did our best that we could do. And we felt that Meta was very fair and had worked very hard for the last two years to push us all to get to this point. Uh, and, you know, Linda, I'm sorry, James Lee Bright, Rose's defense attorney, said, you know, in his 25 years of practicing, uh, Judge Maida was by far one of the most highly regarded uh, people he, you know, he's ever practiced in front of just because wow. of the way that he comported himself, you know. So I think that when it comes to Rhodes, Rhodes made his own bed. The evidence is strong enough against him. And he made a lot of risks when he testified, some of which I don't think were very uh, smart risks. <laughs> Yeah. So, so how was, how was this verdict received, um, you know, from, 
members of the Rhodes family um, and more specifically from, you know, a lot of the Capitol Police um, that yeah. were actually affected by his actions? Well, you know, uh, you, uh, Capitol Police Officer Harry Dunn, who also testified at the trial, um, you know, he was, I know, very relieved to see that the verdict came down how it came down. And we talked about it after the fact. And I asked him exactly that, you know, are you celebrating uh, this verdict? Because I know it's been a long time coming. And keep in mind, Oath Keepers also accused Harry Dunn of, um, you know, some pretty some pretty wild things, uh, suggesting that, you know, he essentially allowed the Oath Keepers to help him on January 6th, <laughs> which is just patently absurd. Um, but you know, he's, he's been through a lot and he said, you know, justice is not something that should be celebrated, but it should be expected. But nonetheless, you know, he was, he was happy because he felt like this was a win for his coworkers. This was a win for the American people. This was a win for the, you know, for, for justice. And it's just been a, a very long time that we've sort of all been waiting to see how this would pan out. Uh, and I, I know that he was quite relieved. And I, and I, you know, I've not yet talked to Tasha Adams, Rhodes's uh, strange uh, wife, since the verdict has come down. But I know in the days running up to it, you know, that was a lot of stress for her. I know that she's been through quite a bit. Rhodes has, I think, terrified her over the course of her life. And she was very concerned about how this would pan out. So I can imagine that there's a lot of relief there for her and for her, for their children. You know, the, uh, the children have expressed publicly um, their, their difficulties with their father and the difficulties that this has caused them. And I think that's one of the saddest things about all of this is it's like, you know, a lot of people's lives got destroyed. A lot of yeah. people are still deal are still dealing with the trauma of that day. And it's a very difficult thing when you walk around in a country where the average person just forgot, just forgot about what happened. And I think that this conviction sort of reminds us why this matters. Yeah. You know, we, we, we had Harry down on this program. Um, I don't know, probably about it year ago i don't know like um and um yeah he's he's uh definitely good people and i'm, I'm glad that he he was able to kind of get some closure on this ordeal yeah yeah for yeah. sure yeah absolutely you know what was it like for the like people that were really supportive of roads was there a backlash was there um protest what's what's going on with that you know, uh, the day that he was found guilty, the courthouse was relatively quiet outside. Um, I didn't see a lot of uh, action going on in terms of protest to that. I know that this is something that uh, for folks who sort of feel like January 6th was an inside job or that these people are political prisoners because they're still awaiting their trial dates or whatever their reasoning might be. Um, you know, I, I know that unfortunately there's just not going to be a, uh, a meeting of the minds on this. And I'll give you an example at the start of this trial, uh, when there was jury selection going on, Ashley Babbitt's mother had attended jury selection and she attends a lot of, a lot of these cases because, uh, she's pretty much taken it upon herself to, preach the gospel that she feels is correct about January 6th. And, you know, this is a person who showed up to the jury selection for a seditious conspiracy trial involving what happened that day, wearing a shirt of the Capitol on January 6th while it was being overrun. And literally people were fighting for their lives in a place where her daughter, you know, was shot and, and was shot because she tried to climb through a window after she was warned by an officer several times do not come any further. And that is tragic. Every person who lost their life, that is tragic. It is horrible that all of this happened as it did. But, you know, I think that there's just never going to really be an agreement among some people about what happened that day. And they're always going to see this as, well, you know, this was a, a hit job from the FBI. And that's what we heard at trial from the defense. So much of the defendant's cases rested on the argument that 
the FBI, you know, botched their investigation because there were mistakes that were made um, with uh, information about some of the defendants not being able to properly identify who was in the chain of command because one of them went by the name Commander. You know, it was like these small, <laughs> these small things that are not, you know, ultimately small, but. You know, I just think that there's going to be a lot of difficulty around this for a long time. And what can you do? You know? Yeah. So, um, so kind of looking at the future, I know that, you know, that the second trial is going to be starting um, here soon, next next week. Next and week, yeah. uh, so, so this episode will air on Tuesday. Um, and so it'll be this week if you're keeping track. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, I'm, I'm curious on your thoughts about, you know, what damage the GOP could potentially do <laughs> with some of these, like, like, uh, you know, future investigations. I know that Trump, you know, even now is, you know, expressing support for, you know, the January 6th defendants and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, 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 and our, our audience will know that. So I'm sort of the, the flaming liberal of the group and Josh is the staunch Republican um, so I, I have concerns that I think that the GOP is going to, you know, make, turn this into another Benghazi or something. So I, 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 I'm curious on what, what your thoughts are, what, what levers can they pull to, to really well, make things harder? I think in terms of what they can do to make things more difficult, look, um, when I covered the Trump years and I covered Congress during the Trump years and I saw the Republicans at various times in the majority or the minority positions, uh, at, you know, on the committee level, um, I anticipate that this is going to be a lot of spectacle, a lot of not getting any work done, (laughs) a lot of just meaningless committee blather and uh, press junkets and more ways to divide the American people instead of taking any kind of real accountability for our actions or the actions of people who we fervently support. Um, I'm not really of the opinion that many people in the GOP have gotten off the Trump train yet. I know that that's a very popular opinion these days, but I'll reserve my judgment on that. I remember (laughs) 2015. I remember 2016. I'll wait um, before I'll say that everybody is totally off that. Um, But, you know, I think that in terms of January 6th, in terms of, you know, all of this, the, the cat's already out of the bag. The committee is going to be wrapped by the end of this month. They're going to produce a report that is going to contain a huge amount of information. We're going to have, you know, a thousand depositions to comb over. The, uh, you know, scholars, uh, academics, people who are interested, journalists, anybody, they're going to have access to this for a while. And there are a lot of pieces to this that we're all going to sort of collectively come to understand that maybe perhaps we didn't understand even with the hearings that we got this summer and as far as what the justice department is doing merrick garland's not going anywhere yet okay just because the house comes into power doesn't mean that the house can control what happens at the justice department the house can't do anything the senate can't do anything about the fact that these grand juries have been convened can't do anything about the indictments that are going to come out all they're going to be able to do is whine and complain and try to deflect and distract and divide. And people would behoove themselves to pay attention to the folks that are trying to just take them down a path of disinformation and not make the same mistakes that we made five years ago. Yeah. That, uh, that a preach. Um, well, <laughs> well, um, Senator Bookman, thank you so much <laughs> yes, for <thank> spending <laughs> some time with us. Um, where where uh, where can people find your work? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter. It's just Brandy, B-R-A-N-D-I underscore Buckman, B-U-C-H-M-A-N. Or you can find me on The Daily Co's, just K-O-S. Um, I'm also on Mastodon now. So if you search for me same way like you find me on Twitter, you'll find me on Mastodon as well, too. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I... I'm, I've been trying to get on Mastodon. It's way too confusing for me at this point. It took me some time, but you know, it takes some new learning. It's definitely not as, uh, as easy as Twitter, that's for sure. Uh, yeah, come on, Elon. Come on. Uh, get your act together. Cool. But uh, yeah, th- exactly. thanks. <laughs> thanks again, Brandy. And uh, to all of our listeners and viewers, yeah, just um, yeah, make sure you're following Brandy. And yes, thanks, Brandy. In. Well, thanks for letting us. me talk your ear off. I appreciate it.